throughout the conference, I keep hearing everybody talk about the crusty old CTO who's who's focused on data, mm-hmm. and uh, you know part of that hurts a little bit, uh, but but part of it shows that there's still this really huge divide. Welcome back to the second episode in our double feature from Industry Summit. If you're just tuning in, I'm your guest host, Julia Slattery, and we're bringing you interviews live from the floor at Industry Summit. Listen on for interviews with Nancy Kramer, the founder and chairman of Resource Amaridi, which was recently purchased and rebranded as IBM IX, Jim Foxworthy of Pragmatic Marketing, and Three Pillar CTO Jonathan Rivers, who you may remember from our previous episode on why innovation labs fail. So I'm here with Nancy Kramer, and we're super excited to have her on the podcast with us. You recently just gave a speech, so we're glad to catch you. Before we start, can you give us a little bit of a background about who you are, what you do, that kind of stuff? Sure. I'm the founder of a company called Resource Amarati that I founded in 1981 with Apple as my first client. Wow. And then sold it to IBM last year. Um, So actually, the brand on Monday will be going away, and we will be officially IBM IX. So been kind of had the same you know name of a company for 36 years so it's a it's it's a bit trippy to be changing <laughs> I bet what's that process been like oh it's you don't want to know <laughs> <laughs> just crazy it is I mean it's been a year and a half of integration and you know nine gazillion work streams of this thing and that thing I mean I think the thing that people are freaking out about the most is that we've got to we've got to pivot over to IBM's mail system and calendar and oh, all wow. that and you know you kind of get really invested in your mm-hmm. in your way that you work and yeah. so now everybody's starting Monday going to have to have a new way of working so wow yeah. that's crazy yeah it'll be crazy and also just changing your reflexes of saying the new company name I know. too yeah absolutely <laughs> that's wild so you recently gave a presentation here too could you tell us a little bit about what you talked about sure I talked about the power of evangelism and how important I think that it is with when you're creating something that's never existed before, that you first have to have a a deep, deep belief in what's possible. And Mm -hmm. that that's really the first step. And, you know, if you don't believe that it's something's possible, then, you you know, all the frameworks and market data and all that kind of stuff don't really matter. It doesn't really matter. So I talked about that. And then I talked a little bit about what I think needs to be present for things to be possible. A level of trust, you know, a huge commitment to tenacity, and then having courage to, you know, be called crazy and all the other things that uh, you'll be called because you're doing something that's never been done before. And so it's understandable, but you've got to be okay with it. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a great lesson to teach people and to learn for yourself. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you had a question, Lindsay. I did. So you have an amazing resume, an amazing background, and I'm sure you've seen a lot in your time. What is the kind of the one piece of advice that you would give to young girls or, you know, even um, girls that are just starting out in their careers um, that they kind of need to kind of keep front of mind as they meet some of the challenges that they will as, you know, being a woman in um, in technology and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, for many years, I was the only woman in the room. Right. And, uh, wow. you know, I still find myself in situations where I'm the only woman in the room. And, um, you know, I never really paid it... I, I never didn't, I didn't really pay attention to it much when I was younger, frankly. I think all of us, I think every human being wants to be recognized Mm -hmm. for being a human being, not by whatever label their gender or their skin color or their nationality projects 
one to be. And right. so I was just really focused on trying to do the best that I could and, and wasn't really focused on my gender. I, as I've gotten older, I do a lot of advocating around, you know, women's rights right. and, and that sort of thing. But I, I mean, I think that you, I, I think it's a matter of just having that developing that confidence and courage to to be yourself mm-hmm. and I mean you said and, it earlier do the best that you can yeah and and have the courage to to do the things that you think are are right you mm-hmm. know you know just kind of a side note this morning I said the word tampons on, yeah. the, on the stage <laughs> which I, I don't think was expected and, and you watch every man in the room I know oh, and I I kind of love that yeah oh yeah <laughs> that's kind of powerful <laughs> You know, when I first have this conversation with a guy and I just talk about the lack of menstrual support products in public restrooms and just watch a guy turn white. It's like, oh, I'm going to have this conversation. (laughs) But, you know, in their defense, in the defense of men, there's nothing that their body does that's remotely similar. So Mm -hmm. there's no no way for men to relate to this situation. So, um, but I have fun with it. I would too, absolutely. That's great. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but before you go, do you have anything coming up on the horizon that you're excited to talk about? Anything you want to share, like a sneak preview? I know you're going through a name change. and uh... Yeah, on Monday, our company name will be sunsetted as we be officially become IBMIX, mm-hmm. which is a huge organization. It's a $2.5 billion division inside IBM with 35 studios across the globe and 15,000 people. Wow. And so to be the evangelist for that is pretty daunting, but it's a lot of fun and we're doing some an amazing amount of work. And, yeah. and it, I think the thing that is really uh, heartwarming for me is that all of our people have opportunities that had we not been part of IBM, they are having now. I mean, we have somebody that's literally working on something with the International Space Station. I'm like, wow. oh my so God, cool. mic drop, that is so cool. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it just exposed to things and places and experiences that two years ago, um, as an independent digital agency, Mm -hmm. none of our folks would have had the opportunity to be exposed to. So I'm really excited to continue to watch our team, you know, take on these amazing projects and be wildly successful. That's so exciting. And IBM really, really, really appreciates it Mm -hmm. because they have invested so much in us and other, a couple of other organizations because the office of the chief marketing officer now has such an impact on technology decisions that mm-hmm. they recognized that a few years ago and have made been making significant investments. And I, I find the company very, very um, inspiring. I mean, to go from being a hardware giant to now 70% of their business is services. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not an easy thing to have happen. Plus, no. a chick runs it, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's even more awesome. Girl power. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, My pleasure. Thank you so much for My coming pleasure. on. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, awesome. We're here with Jim Foxworthy on the floor on the second day of Industry Summit. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. I'm the CEO and president of Pragmatic Marketing. Awesome. We provide training seminars for product managers and product marketing managers. This is, uh, We've been here all three years at this particular event nice. and really love it. The, what the guys do here to support the community. 
is just extraordinary. And it's frankly just a gas to be in a room with hundreds and hundreds of people who think the way we do. So <laughs> it's fun it's to geek a, out sometimes. It's totally fun to geek out, yes. <laughs> I bet. So what have been the most insightful sessions that you've seen so far? Wow, so many choices. Remind me of the gentleman's, how you pronounce his last name, Bob? Mesta. Mesta. Yes. I, I got to tell you, when I heard that he was the person who put the little arrow next to the fuel the, pump yes, and right? the cars, I went up, uh, yeah, he said, you know, he was asked the question sort of rhetorically, if you were at the St. Peter, the Holy, uh, you know, you want to go into heaven, right. what innovation would you point out? And I told him, I ran into him later on, I said, I would totally let you into heaven for that. <laughs> Because I can't tell you how many rental cars yep. that, you know, I look down, I'm like, oh, well, that's smart. Who put that there? Well, I don't really care. And you pull in. Yeah. Right? And then it happens about 80 times. You're like, who did that? That was smart. Right? Let me hug you. Yes. Exactly. And I, I really enjoyed the fireside chat that just took place right mm -hmm. before we started having this conversation. Mm -hmm. When you hear someone who has gone through the transitions from uh, product into leadership positions mm -hmm. and then out into the financing community and then you hear sort of both sides of that equation it really helps me uh, i'm a first-time ceo mm -hmm. uh, and wow. so uh, our company was just acquired by um, private equity about a year ago and so this is just the last year has been mm -hmm. wildly educational for me and to listen to somebody who has made that kind of a bridge in their life is it was fun Good. I was picking up all kinds of stuff. I've been taking notes. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet your notepad's full of like things you can take back and use. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sitting right here and I'm taking it back when I leave. <laughs> <laughs> As he picks it up and hides it. Exactly. <laughs> so what's that transition process been like? A little quick history. Sure. Um, Pragmatic Marketing was started in 1993. Okay. I was a student the very first time the founder ever taught a seminar. And uh, eight years later, I became an instructor. Nine years after that, I became the president of the company, and then last wow. year I became the CEO with the acquisition. So, you know, I've been connected to the company for its entire life, mm -hmm. and I've seen it from lots of different directions, both right. as, an, as a user and then a full-time instructor, which was a, a gig that was complete gas. I love yeah. that. And then moving into operational management. The key difference for us is that we're much more aggressive about pursuing growth okay. because we're owned by private equity, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the intent of private equity. And uh, it's it's really exciting because we're an established company. We have 150,000 plus alumni, very loyal, raving. You're a uh, household fans. name to product managers. Well, that's so. very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. But there's just so much more that can be done. And you you listen to people talk in a conference like this and about how important it is to get full alignment through the organization mm -hmm. of an outside-in point of view, mm -hmm. right? The answer to all of our business questions is outside the building. Yep. It's not inside. We spend far too much of our time inside our own four walls getting self-validated by people who are, and none of us are buying our own products, right? Oh, right. So, yeah. I say that all the time. I am not my customer. Yes. <laughs> yes. No one understands that. I'm not my customer. <laughs> so it's it's just a very exciting time, and I'm, I'm surrounded by an incredibly powerful team. Mm -hmm. uh, the leadership team at Pragmatic is fabulous. The instructor team is just over the top. Uh, you know, all across the board. So we're, we're, we're a very exciting future in front of us. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that future, do you have anything exciting coming up on the horizon that you can talk about? Today is Friday, yes? Yes. Uh, today, uh, we're doing a beta test of a brand new course. Wow. Uh, it's being held in Phoenix uh, near our Scottsdale, Arizona office mm -hmm. uh, on UX. <gasps> cool. And uh, it's called... Um, 
experience essentials okay. because UX, UI, design cuts across lots of different aspects of yep. product. You know, we oftentimes think about it from a sort of a graphical presentation coding point of view, mm -hmm. but it absolutely extends into everything else we do. So yep. in our, our sales and marketing efforts need to be plugged in to the needs of the target persona and how they want to consume information. And so we're very, very excited to offer this new course. So do you have any advice for a, like a product manager or a product marketer that's just getting started? Like something that they should look out for, something they should do, any piece, tidbits of wisdom? Wow, very first piece of advice to give to a brand new product person. Uh, you know, most people get involved in product because they have uh, domain expertise mm -hmm. about the product they're supporting. Right. And I think the, probably the single biggest piece of advice I would offer is that the organization you work for today mm -hmm. has lots and lots of domain experts. What your organization really needs is a market expert. Okay. And so the first thing you should do is uh, leave the building. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, we have an acronym at Pragmatic Marketing called NIHITO, N-I-H-I-T-O, which stands for Nothing Important Happens in the Office. Oh, there you go. Right? And if you think about it, right, how would you want to... We, we hired a, a marketing executive six years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that she said to me was, I want to start off by making sure I get a chance to talk to all the instructors. And I said, I don't want you to talk to anybody who works for this company for yeah. the next 30 days. Okay. I want you to spend the next 30 days going to talk to people outside the building. I don't want you tainted that's at awesome. all by our inside-out orientation. Right. And that's really the way to begin. Mm -hmm. That's really the way to begin. And I, honestly, I don't think that changes over time. Uh, a woman came into our, um, our booth area yesterday, and she described a particular business problem, and she was looking for ways to help break through, but right. really fundamentally will be a culture change for mm -hmm. her organization. And I pointed her at win-loss analysis, mm -hmm. right? What is win-loss analysis? You're talking to people who have recently gone through the buying process for your product, and they either bought or they didn't or buy. They did. yep. And what's the interview like? Well, it goes like this. What got you started looking at products like ours? That's interesting. Tell me more. Then what did you do? <laughs> That's interesting. Tell me more. The right? art of interview is so hard for some people, though. <laughs> but, but the open-ended question is yep. how we learn. It right? is. Absolutely. Two ears, one mouth. It's been around since Greek times, I guess, <laughs> that little metaphor. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. You bet. It's been a pleasure. I hope yeah. you guys enjoy the rest of the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we're here with Lindsay and Ellen on day two of the Industry Summit. Ellen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you sure. are, what you do? Absolutely. Um, my name is Ellen, and I am from Atlanta, Georgia. I work for Chick-fil-A uh, in the so quick cool. service food industry. <laughs> no and way. And I own a product that is our internal tool that collects all of our customer data when they use our mobile ordering app. No so way. I'm here with two colleagues, one who owns the app and one who owns our online catering platform. Oh, and then so cool. I'm the only one that manages an internal tool. They're both uh, customer facing. Okay. So yeah, I just joined, it's been about three months and wow. um, previously was at a consulting firm. So new to the whole product game and just want to learn from really smart people that are in similar roles at different companies. Very cool. Very nice. How did you get into Chick-fil-A apps? <laughs> well, um, I went and got my MBA at UVA 
today and just graduated in May. Um, Congrats. Always been a passionate marketer, so I really wanted to transition out of consulting and into more of a customer-centric environment. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband, who was my fiancé at the time, was already in Atlanta, so I was trying to get to Atlanta, which Mm -hmm. is where Chick-fil-A is headquartered. Um, And it was kind of the perfect mix of a purpose-driven company that really cared about customers, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's been a blast so far. I've learned a lot. That's so cool. That's awesome. (laughs) So do you have any exciting projects or new features coming down the pipeline that you can talk about, or is it kind of confidential? No, I'm happy to share things. Um, We are working a lot on automation, Mm -hmm. and what does that look like? Um, Because the primary users of our platform are operators. Okay. So we have individual operators that own all of our locations for Chick-fil-A for the most part. A few of them are corporate-owned, but for the most part, they're individual owner-operators, and they're entrepreneurs, and they run their day-to-day operations. Um, So we're working on, like, how do we get smart around helping them with automation so they can turn on and off certain levers to pull? So if they really want to grow breakfast, what are some things we can help automate? Oh, interesting. If they really want to encourage people to come in for dinner, what are some uh, free offers that we can encourage them to send out that will help grow that day part? So Mm -hmm. thinking more along the lines of machine learning and how do we help this tool kind of multiply their effort Mm because they're already so busy. Mm -hmm. Um, How do they flip on and off switches and kind of view those as individual marketing campaigns? Wow, that's awesome. So really cool. I'm I'm working to learn a lot of things that are new to me, but I'm really excited (laughs) about it. Sounds like it. Yeah, Yeah, you sound really passionate about it. It's a lot of fun. So I have to ask, did you all bring waffle fries with you? We didn't. (laughs) Um, And funny enough, waffle fries is one of, it's the most craveable and favorite item for most of our customers. Um, It is also the hardest to quality control. Really? Because it has to stay at a specific temperature to be that craveable, crispy on the outside, soft on the inside, not too hot to burn your mouth, but hot enough that it tastes fresh out of the grill. So um, (laughs) it's it's our most favorite item, but it's also the one that we probably lose the most sleep about when we're thinking about, you know, are we going to pile it on to and delivery, mm-hmm. how do we oh, wow. quality yeah. control and make sure that fries are at the temperature they need to be when they go to our customers. When they customers. get there, yeah. Exactly. Oh. So yeah, a lot of things to think about. A lot of really smart people in packaging are trying yeah. to tackle what that looks like. would never have thought about that. Same here, yeah. I'm just like, I want the fries now. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a shame that you can't bring the fries, but I guess I get it. True. I'm glad that you're thinking about the customer we and the are. consumer. We are. We're doing giving me some soggy cold fries. No, we're trying our best to always make it a good experience for you. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else you want to talk about. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. And it's great to hear stuff about what Chick-fil-A is doing. Well, we love hearing about what everybody else is doing and just trying to get ideas and share learnings. Yep. Awesome. Great to meet y'all. Yeah, you too. Thank you. All right, so we're here with Lior Abraham. You have been at the booth next to us this whole conference, and we're pretty excited to learn about what you do and why you all have these awesome blue-green T-shirts. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, our T-shirts say data greater than opinion. All right. (laughs) That captures a lot of it. So I'll give the quick background. I'm one of the founders of the company. Mm -hmm. My other co-founder, we both came out of Facebook. Okay. He ran all of the back-end engineering team during this crazy scale-out years when Facebook went from like a million to billion users. Crazy infrastructure engineering effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on the team. I built 
some of the real-time systems that were external, namely like the first real-time news feed. Okay. And if you think about all these systems, you just load Facebook in your app. Yeah. But it's hitting this database and giving you a query result in a second. Newsfeed happens to be just like, what are your friends doing? So we're good at building these incredibly fast databases. But 10, 12 years ago, there was no analytics was nowhere. Like none of this data stuff you see here existed. Mm -hmm. And we had nothing. And so you kind of have this trade-off of you have a few maybe dashboards of things you can calculate. You can run these SQL queries that for us took days. I'd forget what my question was. And so we just applied the same principles we did for for these databases outside of the company internally to analytics and just built a very powerful exploratory visual tool at Facebook called Scuba. Okay. And what Inorando does is takes the themes from that. Scuba is still today in use by more than half of people at Facebook and took that to the next level and just the goal is as much visibility and power and understanding what's going on, like what the heck is going on in your product or business. Very nice. All right. How was the transition process out of Facebook? Uh, it was very stark. When you lose things, you start to re appreciate them. I bet. So it was one day going from having... At that point, they had already gone to like eight kitchens or whatever. Oh, my. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. And just I had a lot of friends to just three of us in a tiny room mm -hmm. with no support. And you just don't realize all the just administrative little things you have to take care of. And then we grew and do worry about toilet paper and <laughs> things like that. So it was, it was stark and a little bit lonely, but now we're, we're 80 or 90 people. And so, um, wow. getting and building kind of our own culture. So getting out of it, it was also at Facebook, we used Facebook, the product itself. Okay. And so the second you leave at 5 p.m., they shut it down. So you go from having all these internal discussion groups and um, even just the social stuff, and you lose it, and and so it's it's a little bit isolating at first, but but we got through it. Wow, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> so talking about the initial challenges, one of the things I'm curious was how did you get your first set of users? Yeah, so we it took us two years to build the product. We had some good beta customers. Okay. Cora and Asana. Asana is still a customer. It's a very complicated product, so because we're doing like speed scale, kind of expressibility of as as the big universe of questions you can ask and answer as possible, and making it easy so UX. So it's like kind of four things hard at once. So we had beta customers, but we had a product that didn't work for a very long time. So it's nice that most of them converted, mm -hmm. but it took us a while. And then and then when we launched. We thought we'd start with like smaller to medium companies, but we, because we dealt with scale well and we're kind of solving a cool problem, we got some six big teams at Microsoft fairly early on, Bing, Search, like Comcast, and now Uber, Salesforce, and some, some pretty cool brands along with, with like many other cool companies. Cool, that's awesome. The first couple of years, it was a challenge because you're, Doing something so big, you could have, you kind of have to believe that you'll get to where we are here, and we believe we'll get further. But at the same time, you're like, how the hell? We don't know how to sell this product. We don't know how to. 
um, my girlfriend and I never would talk about money. Mm -hmm. And so a key for us was a little before the launch, we hired an amazing head of sales. And so you can create the best product in the world. And if you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. Yep. And there's companies that have, I won't name, but average mediocre products where they have amazing sales teams and they can get it through. So we had a little bit of luck with our initial hires on the business side where we can translate this kind of cool idea and initially a little bit hacked together mm -hmm. beta prototype and actually get money for it and get more people to use it and it's as an engineer and product person it's crazy how much it comes down to sales and human relationships and <laughs> do they like us and do they trust us and yeah. um, it's not just it's not just you build this and they, they will come yeah, in there actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the one thing, okay, so you mentioned analytics wasn't as uh, much of a focus when you get when you got started. How are you? How have you seen it evolve over the last few years? And what kind of demand signals do you see? Why do people buy your product these days? Yeah, that's a great question. Even over the four and a half years of this company, we see analytics evolving. And when you think of, like I said earlier. It, just 10 years ago, there was almost nothing. Like people have used Google Analytics as like first thing because it's free if you're a startup. There's nothing. And so people use legacy solutions. So you once once you want more power than Google Analytics, you set up a database. But databases weren't built for analytics. They're built for like um, acid transactional factory inventories and built for totally different reasons. Or they use Hadoop, which is built just a general data. It's not built for analytics, but processing large amounts of data. And so the evolution we saw where we're focusing is hyper-focused on analytics use case. We think it's kind of a 95% use case for data. And so because we can focus on that, we can do a much better job even than people putting kind of a UI on, a, on an old database and they have the bottleneck and the performance limitations of the underlying store. And so even just the evolution we're seeing, way more people logging data, data is getting cleaner. And so when we started out, it was a lot harder to tap into the data. Now we're seeing people converge on, we should log things in event model, which is what we kind of evangelize. And so it's, it's become easier in some ways, but there's still today no convergence. Like every company does it differently. There's not yet, this is how you should do it. Like either use Oracle or this. It, it, there's not that, that, that. So people are kind of converging on, on, a, few, on a few things, but it's, it's still evolving like as we cool. speak, yeah. Some of the things that I've seen with other products is there's a lot of focus on creating cohorts based on the user behavior. Yeah. How does it align or, or how is your product? Yeah. Yeah. So going a little deeper into the product, that's we built. So like Google Analytics kind of decides what you have. For us, so it's the next level. Um, we don't pre-calculate anything or decide. It's, it's a very open-ended, ask a question, get an answer, interactive experience. So things like cohorts, you can build, did someone use this feature? I want my most engaged users, my least engaged users, users that took more than an hour to get to this feature. Almost anything you can state in English, where in 
other solutions, you have to write a page-long SQL query, ask a data scientist. We try to make easier, so the UX and the back end of it is hard, but building, um, segmenting, do it on the fly. And as you do that, you build these building blocks. So if I have my whale users, new users, that building block exists for everyone and someone else in the company can build on top of that. And I build a new metric, I can see it through the lens of these different types of users. When I say we're focused on an, uh, analytics engine, we kind of, we're hyper-optimized on things happening over time and what we call actors, which is usually a user, but it could be a car at Reddit, which is a customer, it's a post. So what does it look like? What does a post do over time? Like I want to see the distribution of posts created to 100 comments and zoom in on the tail of that distribution. So, but typically it's a user. So we're optimizing users over time, cohorts, for every user, how many times do they click X? And now I can filter on people that did 10, flows, sequences over time, what happened between events, what did people, what's the distribution of time to get from here to here to there. Sure, cool. So that, uh, that certainly gives you a lot of insight into what's going on with your product. So talking about your product, especially in that now as, as um, from a product development standpoint, what are some of the things that you are using apart from your own product to, yeah. to understand the customer behavior and uh, yeah. the direction? So we, not surprisingly, we use our own product. Sure. <laughs> Dog food's a cliche. What else do we use? I mean, we, it's still just a lot of human. Like I, the biggest value I had, we kind of had a hypothesis that we did this at Facebook and this maybe it'll be applicable to other companies early on, but we didn't know Facebook's a little different. And it, it seems to be borne out that pe people, it is useful for other people. Since then, now we see across the board all these types of different, totally different companies, but all of them have data and things, doing things over time. We have a tire company and they're collecting data to prevent crashes because tires blow out and overheat. A lot of it is we, we collect data, but as a founder being in the field, that's just the most invaluable and it's kind of human and the people here at our booth who are talking to customers and potential customers and understanding how people are using data and what they want that's as we're evolving the product that that's that's been it's it's more human than than tools we use some things for prioritization but the main thing is understanding customers and talking to people sure and sort of in the in a related uh, uh, area, I'm curious how are you, how's your team is structured internally? Do you? Yeah, uh, it's evolved. Today, it's now we have more defined of engineering. We have a product team, mm -hmm. kind of in the center of things. We have a sales team, and we have a customer success team, which so pre and post sales. And I have been lucky to be involved in all of them, but they're all kind of awesome and have their functions and there's a dynamic between the teams and product is kind of trying to internalize but the field gets a lot of feedback the current customers we want them to keep renewing so we get feedback from them and product tries to prioritize it and then engineering builds it but it's still a startup and everyone's involved and in early days it was kind of the wild west so like mm -hmm. a lot of bugs and fires and so <laughs> I played played the prioritization role, and so it's just what is the most we 
there's so many engineers, there's so many people that can fix this, what is the most burning issues? And when, you know, you're unloading like a Bing scale, which is like 20% of search at the time in the US, I think, and like, there are gonna be a lot of problems. So just choosing what's the biggest fire that we had. Mm-hmm. Now we kind of got, have gotten out of that, we have a good number of customers and it's working, and so now, more open-ended per, it's not fire, so more open-ended. We have this core kind of very powerful engine of analytics engine. Where do we take that to the next level? And there's so many options. And so it's, it's kind of cool to make those decisions and figure out what the next step is. But that's officially it's the product team, but really it's still all those teams that I mentioned. Sure. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, great. Do you have a website? Do you have a Twitter? Where can people find you? Uh, I have, uh, because I was a Facebook, I'm a late Twitter adopter. Right. Now I'm a big That's user. Fair. I think I, I, I joke that I have 30 followers that are active, but I don't. I think I have a, I have a little more than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm good. I'm more on Facebook. But yeah, I have a Twitter where mostly I just post the name comments. All right. But we have a site. It's We have a website called, uh, it's interana.com, I-N-T-E-R. ANA stands for Interactive Analytics. Um, we're about to relaunch it in the next couple of weeks, but that's a good place to, to get more, more information. Awesome. Well, thank you for so much for stopping by and talking to us. Looking forward to being your booth neighbors for the rest of the conference. Yeah, me as well. I'm yeah. looking forward to listening to some of, some of these other podcasts. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so I'm here with our CTO, Jonathan Rivers. Jonathan, you've been hosting the talk shops throughout this whole summit, which means you've had the opportunity to sit down with all of the speakers that have been going on stage and giving their presentations and kind of getting a one-on-one or two-on-one chat with them. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think it was it was, it was was pretty exciting. Certainly a new thing for me to do. Uh, normally, hosting a, a, a panel or, or emceeing a conversation is not something that normally goes into CTOing. So yep. it's uh, uh, you know certainly new, but I, I, I love all of this stuff and getting to talk to them uh, individually has been great. And it, you know, it forced me to sit through all of the presentations and listen very deeply. I bet. And get a, a good understanding not only for what they were saying and what their message was, but thinking about ahead of time what would other people want to know and, and how do we keep that conversation going? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how do you take it that step further? And kind of because the one-on-one chats make them more accessible, how do you kind of bring that level into your conversations? Well, and and, and very specifically, one of the things that I had in mind was how do I draw them out to the audience with a a mindset of getting started? People who come to conferences like this are practitioners, and a lot of times they are the evangelists in their organizations. They are trying to make a change. They're coming to events like industry here in Cleveland and trying to gain the language and the skills that they need to sell their companies on why this is the right thing to do. And so I, I took that as a sort of a design point when I was listening to the speeches and then facilitating the talk shops. How can I arm them with the language and the kinds of words that they're going to need to make the impact that they want to. Absolutely. And so you would usually have about 15 minutes between the end of the presentations and when you would go on stage. How did you prepare for these conversations? 
So I, I'm a little bit of a fiend for, for Google Keep on my phone. All right. And so, you know, it, my, my phone's been running out of juice by about five every night because it's been on nearly constantly. So mm-hmm. during each, each talk of each presenter, open up Google Keep and then write down sort of questions or points mm-hmm. and then uh, try and keep that short and, and then tight. And then in the 10 minutes read through those points, sort of prioritize them into something that I, I thought would work, and then just flesh out in my mind, you know, okay, this point, what kind of question do I want to ask, and what's it going to look like? Mm-hmm. So what have been some of the most impactful conversations you've had? I, I, I think there, there, there are really three that, that, that sprung to mind. The, the first is, you know, John Freed, the, the notion of only planning six weeks at a time is is amazing to me. You know, I've argued against long-term roadmaps for, for a long time, and to see him do that with wanton abandon just makes my, my, my heart very, very warm. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was there was some 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 things that he said that were were so impactful to me and i'm i'm going to i'm i'm still thinking about them i'll be thinking about them for a while mm-hmm. and i i don't know if it was a throwaway comment or or what but he said yes later or or okay. is the language of regret and so this notion that things that we talk about that we'll get to later mm-hmm. we always regret right and 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 we know it we, we know it at the very beginning because we don't want to do it, which is why we're not doing now. It's not a good idea now. I don't want to do it now, but I've somehow agreed to do it later, mm-hmm. which is only going to end in, in, in regret. And again, I talk about the kind of language to sell ideas and how important it is for the, the people here. I think that one resonated with me because... Oftentimes, you know, I have to say no to things and, and, you know, there's always this pressure to start with yes. Mm -hmm. And when it's going to end in tears, just start with the tears. And then don't and then don't pawn it off till six months later, where the amount of disappointment can be built. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So that one was 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 huge for me. Um, and then second, I think Nancy Kramer uh, really talking about evangelism, and one is a, a leader of an organization. It's it's super huge, right? I have to be an evangelist for my teams. Absolutely. I have to be an evangelist for uh, my company and, and and what we do, and that, you know knowing to be an evangelist and that 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 requires belief is is important right i have to believe in my teams to to truly sell them and i have to believe in my company to truly sell it and so i think that that was you know that that spoke to me very personally but professionally when we look at product management ux and design there is still so much evangelism that needs to go on and i you know i talked about this a, a minute ago people coming to this conference need to learn how to sell this into their organizations who are not ready mm-hmm. because if their organizations are probably ready they're on the speaker roster and they're not necessarily in the the uh, attendee space and so the things that are important about evangelism and why it's important uh, is 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 really sort of impactful and i'm hoping that people understand that you know product management Managers need to be evangelists for their products. They need to be evangelists for their teams, uh, and they have to believe strongly in them and, and, and push them forward. And I think that's huge. And you know, you, you, you know, one of the other speakers was talking about storytelling, and storytelling mm-hmm. yes. and evangelism go hand in hand. Building a narrative, painting a worldview, getting people to want to live there and to follow you through it is so important in what we do. And I think it's maybe the biggest thing that anyone can take through you know from this conference is the belief 
how to paint the picture and how to inspire people to want to live in that world uh, is is really what's going to going to drive things forward. And the, the the third is, you know, Bob Mesta talking about questioning yep. and and questioning and and the, the five whys and, and always questioning things. And, and how powerful that is and, and just realizing that this power that comes from asking questions has almost been beaten out of us at a very, very young age. You know, we're, we're told to stop asking questions just to accept things. And, and the people who are going to be really successful are the ones who are going to question everything. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a hard thing to learn because when you're questioning, people get defensive. Uh, you know what? You don't like my idea. You don't like my answer. You don't like my, my implementation. Well, no, I'm just asking questions because I want to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but I want to know, and the only way that I'm going to know is if I if I ask questions, and so I have to, to let go of my own emotions uh, or sort of feelings of insecurity because I don't know. And then, you know, you've got to disarm your, your, your sort of audience so that way they don't feel like your questions are attacks, but that they're mm-hmm. very genuine requests for enlightenment. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. So you had the opportunity to go up on the main stage and give a little two-minute talk, and you talked about how lucky you are to have both product and engineering report to you in our organization. Have you been seeing that a lot within the other organizations that you've talked to? No, I, I, I haven't. I, I, I maintain that I am, you know, particularly lucky. I, I, <laughs> throughout the conference, I keep hearing everybody talk about the crusty old CTO who's who's focused on data, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, part of that hurts a little bit. Uh, but but part of it shows that there's still this really huge divide. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it out in the marketplace where you have a chief product officer, you have a chief technology officer, you, you might even have a, a chief information officer, which, which you know, all three of them at the, the same place is, is absolute madness. But there's still a divide. I think the, the, the notion of a full stack team, the way we view it in engineering, mm-hmm. is still not there for product. You know, there's this, this desire to segment rather than having product management really heavily embedded with UX design and engineering all in the same team. They've got, they're in one team and they're supposed to be working on the same things together, but they have separate masters. And mm. when they have separate masters, you're, you're going to have a, a level of friction that I just don't think you need to have. It makes collaboration a lot harder too, because you have different things coming from different areas. It, it, it makes dispute resolution much more difficult, you know, sort of for, for, for us, if there's a conflict between product and engineering, they've got the same boss, <laughs> right? Ultimately, something can get decided and it gets decided pretty pretty easily and, and no, you know, there's there's a lot less political power and a lot less political pressure mm-hmm. because it's, it's all in the same group, it's all in the same team and ultimately they have the same responsibility. Now, I should say that is mirrored in the in the broader sort of marketplace, right? So even if you have a chief product officer and you have a chief technology officer, they still have one ultimate master, which is their customer. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, coming out of this this conference, one of the things that is is more and more clear, and I'm seeing it in the industry, and it's this notion of customer centricity yes. and customer centric design rather than business centric design. Mm-hmm. And the companies that are going to see, secede in the marketplace are the ones who focus on their clients and do what their clients want, not what they want for their clients. Absolutely, yes. So Industry Summit is coming to a close around us right now. What has been your main takeaway from this whole event? 
questioning and learning. Okay. Right? It, it is absolutely questioning and learning. A couple of folks, uh, uh, there were two speakers who talked about copying features. Okay. And, and one talked about why it's wrong, and one did it and lamented it. So the notion goes like this. If you're a follower and you just copy a feature mm -hmm. because your competitor has it, you can do that and you can capture some market share. The problem is you don't know why you have that feature. The only reason you have that feature is because somebody else has that feature. You didn't think about the feature. You didn't think about why you needed it. You don't think about why you had it or how your customer might use it. You just decided to have it. And then you go and build it. How do you know you built the right thing? You, you know their customers want it, but their customers aren't your customers. If their customers were your customers, they'd be your customers. And so you've built something for, for someone else, and you don't know that they're going to use your product, and you don't know if the value is going to be there. You haven't questioned. You haven't tested. You haven't learned. You, you've, you've merely aped and imitated, and that's not going to get you the results that you want. Absolutely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for hosting the talk shops. This has been a very great experience for all of us, I would say. Thank you. It's been it's been a blast. Absolutely. All right. And with that, our Industry Summit double episode has come to a close. If you didn't already listen to the first part of this double feature episode, give it a listen to hear interviews with Blade Cotelli of Sonos, Bob Mesta of the Rewired Group, Melissa Perry of Products Labs, and more. Information on each of the speakers can be found in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about what any of our guests on this episode had to say. I want to thank everyone who took time out of the event to speak with me about themselves and their passion projects. I especially want to thank my colleagues who sent interview guests my way and acted as guest hosts themselves throughout the event. They are, in alphabetical order, Alok Jane, Jennifer Ives, Lindsay Klepping, Jonathan Rivers, and Sayla Sang. Thanks also to Paul McAvinci and Mike Belsito from Product Collective for their hospitality and for putting on such a great event. And finally, thank you for listening. 